welcome to the long-awaited 300th podcast of Pegging Paradise. <laughs> Hi, I'm Ruby. And yes, I imagine a bunch of you have been waiting a while for this one. So here's what I decided to do. Michelle Renee, who is widely celebrated <laughs> on this podcast for having probably the most listened to podcast interview, which we will tell you which one it is. She has come by for a chat and we're just going to talk about stuff. And I hope we keep you entertained. This is part one of two parts. Enjoy. So here we are at episode 300, starting off in 2012, my podcast, and all the way up until now. And I have a guest that I think a lot of you are going to be very happy to hear from again. And that would be Michelle. Michelle was on podcast number 119. And I'm sure that many of you recall 146, which was about the pegging gangbang. Got a lot of mail about that. And then 200, both Michelle and her now husband, Paul, talked a lot with me about Oh, relational stuff, toxic masculinity stuff, and things like that. So here we are again with Michelle. Michelle, I am so happy to have you back. Welcome to number 300. I It is wild when I think back to like the first episode was right after Paul and I started dating and I'd finally done the pegging thing and we could finally talk on an interview. <laughs> and like at that same time was when I took cuddleless training. Right. Uh, that's that's like there was so many things like that were I didn't know we're going to be coming together to be so freaking big in my life mm -hmm. you clearly being one of those big things in my life because like we <laughs> we forged this beautiful friendship mm -hmm. and and I don't I, I don't know a pinch myself moment to be here for 300 Yes, it's been quite a journey and you have been so many places and learned so many things. And that's what I mean about being so many places. I've watched you gain more and more knowledge and expand. And I don't know, it, it almost seems now like you're this wizard that occupies a whole bunch of different categories about sexuality and relationships. And I'm, I'm in awe of you. I feel like I shifted from like sex geek to more relationship geek. Like I don't geek out on the sex itself as much anymore. I look at like maybe the bigger picture of like what's happening outside of sex. And it's like, I still turn to you to be like, okay, Ruby, but what's happening in the sex toy world? I'm so uh, <laughs> out of the loop. And I used to sell sex toys. I used to know everything that was happening in that world. And mm -hmm. now I'm, I'm kind of like, oh, but if you want to talk about attachment stuff, let me throw my stuff in the ring, right? Like I, it's just my, my interests have really shifted a lot. That the, time. Yeah. The focuses that we have really inform all of that. I mean, I know a lot about butt sex toys, absolutely. But when it comes to all other kinds of sex toys, I'm like, well, yeah, it's a little bit here and there. I, I mean, our interests are important, right? Like, absolutely. I'm not interested in much other than butt sex toys, too. So there's our, <laughs> we both love butts. Like, give me a prostate, you know, that I haven't, I haven't met a prostate I didn't like, right? Like, that's why you're on number 300. <laughs> yes, we are big fans. So, I, one of the things I wanted to talk about with you is, well, let's start off with this attachment stuff, because just to give it a preface, I get a lot of emails from people talking about relationship stuff. And of course, you know, woven in there is the pegging stuff and how their partner's reacting to it, whether they're doing it or not doing it, how enthusiastic they are, how they're doing it, you know, dominant or submissive roles and all kinds of different stuff. But so often there is an underlying thread that I can see, but I don't understand as well as I'm sure you do about just the relationship stuff, period, not talking about the pegging stuff. So attachment styles is something I've heard a lot of talk about. I honestly don't believe I've taken the test to figure out what kind of attachment person I am. So can you talk to that? Um. I'm not an expert in attachment, but I sure, like sure. to quote a lot of experts. And like, I think one of the people I think talks about it really well, there's two people that come to mind. 
Um, the first person that I really loved how they talked about attachment styles was Stan Tatkin. He wrote a couple of books. Well, he's wrote a lot of books, but the first book I think I was introduced to it was called Wired for Love. And it talks about how our nervous systems show up in relationships. And the way that he kind of talks about attachment styles is there's the anchor, which is the secure attachment style. Mm -hmm. And that makes a lot of sense visually, right? There's solid, like not super movable. You know what I mean? They kind of just, they're, 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 they're grounded. And mm -hmm. then there's, the the wave attachment style and if you think about a wave coming in like it just keeps coming in right and I think that's like the anxious attachment style or insecure attachment style we just keep coming coming at it for more and more oh, and wow. more right and then he also talks about the island and that's more like the avoidance the um mm -hmm. fearful avoidant like that side of it like the I want to be the the maybe they don't want to be alone, but they end up being alone a lot. Right. And the, mm -hmm. and the wave comes at the Island, right? Because those two styles are drawn to each other, which makes life a little bit hell. Right? Yes. 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 But, but that's how our, our, our nervous system work. We're always looking to heal these childhood wounds that these, our childhood is what creates our attachment style. Mm -hmm. So then like, so that's like, the easiest way for me to visualize and share like what different attachment styles kind of feel like. And are, there, then, ju are there just those three? I, there's different combinations and uh, this is where I lose my expertise, right? Gotcha. I, I don't get into the, I'm not the person to talk in detail about each type and how they show up in the world. Gotcha. Um, but, but that visualization of like islands, anchors, and waves, really simple, like easy to, to visualize how those different ones interact yes um and then jessica fern came out with poly secure which is a great book and really talks about the different attachment styles but from a place that feels really holistic like hey um i think this a lot of times we think everybody should be a secure attachment right and they give some i think ridiculous statistics of how many people are securely attached I, I can't imagine we live in a world where that many people could actually be securely attached. Okay. Um, but but she looks at it from a place of here's the here's the benefits of being a insecure attached person. Here's the benefits. Pros and not, cons. Not just oh, you must move towards secure attachment. Yeah, not just right? judging and saying secure's the best. Right. But also pointing out here's some areas that you probably need to work on if you run if you fall under this kind of attachment style. So I love her book, whether you're non-monogamous or not, because she does a really good job of talking about how to work on your secure attachment to self. Ooh, which I that's think critical. if the world worked on that, talk about one of those major shifts of how we would relate to each other. Because how if I'm securely attached to myself, how you show up in relationship with me is so less um uh what's the word I want to use like um it affects me less right I can see you just as you are rather than needing you to fit a certain characteristic yeah and when you are approaching someone else you're approaching from a space of perhaps curiosity and interest as opposed to need to like come you know fill my hole fill <laughs> not literally <laughs> my emotional space that I didn't get from my parents. What comes to mind right here is uh, Dr. Joe Court. I love that guy. He recently made a video that said, okay, so complete these two sentences. Uh, what I never got, what I always wanted, but never got from my either father or mother is blank, right? And he said, that is exactly what you're going to be looking or when you go meet people, you're going to be drawn to people that can give you that. And so that ties in here so much. And what I'm hearing you say is you heal that part of yourself. You give that to yourself. You mm -hmm. work that through. And then you have so much more uh, authenticity also. But also it it's just seems like coming together with people is so much less tumultuous and, and more clear. Yeah. Yeah, like you, you're not relying on them for this thing that you've learned how to give yourself. Yeah. Right. So then they can just show up as them. And yes. You can show up as you, which 
reminds me of my current relationship, right? <laughs> like he's definitely, Paul is definitely my mom. Like that is the, what am I trying to work on? If we're, you know, unconsciously drawn to these people, mm-hmm. he is my mother. He is hard to get his attention. He is easily distracted. Um, uh, I feel like I've struggled with feeling invisible, like the, the exact same feelings I had with my mother show up with my partner. And now as an adult who's been working on healing those inner child wounds, I can come at it with a very different lens of compassion and even compassion for my mom. Right. And it's not about me. This like when you're a kid, everything is about you, the good, the bad, the ugly, right? Like that's mm-hmm. part of being a child. Mm-hmm. And and as an adult, if I can show up with my um, my wise adult, I think is how Terry Real puts it in his book called Us, which I think is a really great read. If I can show up as my wise adult instead of my adaptive child, mm-hmm. I can approach that relationship completely different. Yeah. And to clarify here, it's interesting because when I talked about what Joe Court had said, you're going to be attracted to people who can give you that, what it sounded like when I said that sentence was, okay, if you had a mother who was distracted and you felt invisible and that sort of thing, you're going to look for a partner who is the opposite of that. But that's not what happens. To be really clear about that, you will attract the exact same thing so that you have the opportunity to work through it. And many, almost always, it's completely unconscious. It's almost like the universe is giving us another opportunity. It's like, oh, hey, you didn't get this the first time. Let's Mm -hmm. let's, uh, give you another possibility here to work this through. Yeah, it almost feels like magic, but it's just the way our nervous systems are wired. There's science behind it. (laughs) There's science behind it, yeah. It's always nice. Yeah, we like science. Mm -hmm. Big, big fan. Absolutely. Well, is there a place online to to take a test and figure out what which one you are? You know, like love languages stuff. I I know there has to be, but I don't have one off the top of my like tip of my head to to send you to. Um, I'll see if I, I can find that. I don't know. I mean, it's one of those things. Like, is it important information? I don't know. Um, I think it's important to understand that we've had events in our childhood that shape how we're showing up today. Mm -hmm. And like, if you need that label, yeah, go, go Google, you know, attachment styles. Um, I think reading some of the books that I mentioned, like Polysecure or Stan Stan Tekken's Wired for Love. I think those are great ways to also figure out what your attachment style is. Cause there's going to be one that you can read about it and go, that's me. You don't need to take a test like a, a, B, or C kind of thing. Sure, like, sure. It's really like, where do you see yourself? And I think, I think what I learned from Dan or from Stan's book was that we, we will move in and out of these different places. Like, I don't know that we're always in secure attachment mode. Got I don't it. know that we're always in insecure attachment mode. Like, um, I think of it as like codependence and independence, interdependence, and how we 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 just don't want to live in one of like we don't want to live in codependence all the time but we're all going to have some codependent behavior now so like again, i think sure. we i want to live in secure attachment but i'm going to i'm going to have times where i peek into insecure attachment yes it definitely shows up especially when those childhood wounds pop up yeah and that overlaps so much into whatever sexual stuff you're you're exploring and playing with And sometimes when I get those emails from people, I think, oh, there's some relationship work that needs to be done here. And sometimes I feel like I'm just ill-equipped to answer the question specifically. It's impossible to, because I'll get a very simple email that says something like, so we started doing the pegging thing, but my partner really never will initiate doing the pegging thing. And I'm kind of embarrassed, so I don't want to do it. And so how can I get them to be more enthusiastic? oh my God, do you know how many answers there are to that? It depends on what kind of relationship you have, what history you have, how you relate to each other around so many different things, how you show up as a partner, whether you're really dedicated to try and make your partner happiest they can be. Uh, It depends on the equipment that you have, whether it's comfortable, whether they hate it, whether they love it. 
you know, what your housing is. How safe do they feel to be able to be like honest about what they, if they even want to do the thing? Are they exactly? Yes. It, 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 it there's, uh, yeah, I, I go back to like safety number one. And that's part of like in the work that I'm doing is like reminding myself we have to establish the safety. It's really easy to jump to the 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 end, the the goal, the whatever that goal is. Like I want my penis to work better. We can't just work on that. We have to build the foundation up, and that is safety is like the bottom, the most base layer, and. And if we look at how people move into relationship, they, they jump ahead. They like do the opposite of what, um, I always, I often share this video that talks about, um, the tiger and the tigress and how they moved into relationship together. And that first thing is safety, right? They're going to growl at each other and figure out, is this, is this animal safe for me to be around or will I die? Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. They have to, they have to play with boundaries to figure out if they're safe. If I growl, is this tiger going to attack me and and then once they realize they're safe they can have closer proximity with closer proximity the sex and the love follows and and then you know they get the 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 well the sex and the how do they word it i don't remember but and then the and then the love is built right but we as people we see someone we make up a story about them about how wonderful and loving and caring they are we don't really know that that's the case but we make up this idea of this person and then we pounce on them right mm-hmm. we 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 have our i'm a i'm a big proponent of first date sex i did a lot of it when i was dating before mm-hmm. um but then they end up in a relationship with this person maybe but they end up in a relationship, let's say they ended up in a relationship and then it's like, oh, but like, I don't have the closeness and the safety. How yes. do I start that now? And mm-hmm. it's much more difficult to build that in after the fact. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah. if we can, if we like really work on the safety component, um, I think uh, some of these other problems would, would show up differently. I don't know that they would go away, but they would show up differently. And creating a safe container for these things also the most recent experience i've had in terms of thinking about it that way is sharing your kinks with your partner you know because that's huge in the field that i work in it's like that's the one of the hardest things for hopeful receivers is to share this information with their partner but if you've already built a container of trust where you have had sat down and established these these rules around okay here is how careful we're going to be and respectful and non-judgmental when one of us comes to the other and and talks about something really tender and really vulnerable which is absolutely kinks to to hear them to not judge it and to sit with it if you need time to sit with it but to always, always, and this is one of the things in my by now famous podcast number 112 that I emphasize is you need to be grateful for that gift of intimacy. Mm-hmm. Even if you your partner comes and says, hey, I want to do water sports, you know, I want to pee all over you in the bathtub or whatever. And that is the last thing you want to do. You can say, well, wow, thank you for coming and telling me that and sharing that information with me. In fact, that is the best way to lead off whenever anybody, that acknowledgement, whenever anybody comes to you and gives you this really vulnerable stuff, yeah. because that way it creates that safety. Even if later you know or as you continue talking you say well it's not something that i'm interested in but you know i'm curious why are you interested in what about it appeals to you because then you learn even more and who knows at some point in time you might decide well it kind of that kink you know it occupies a kind of a benign spot inside me and so maybe as a surprise i might go hey let's do that thing you know, mm-hmm. because it's not that big of a deal to you as long as it's not something that is negative into the negative territory. Yeah. And that's what I wish so many couples would just learn how to do as opposed to existing in this box of expected or that's not the right word, accepted sexual behaviors that society forces us into drives me nuts. And of course, that's one of the things I run up against all the time with the whole pegging thing is we're not in the box and we're making our own fucking box, man. 
Yeah, I it breaks my heart. Like, I, I I think it's really easy to talk to strangers about your kinks, right? Like, we become you and I in our work. We become that soft place to land where we're coming in with like unconditional positive regard. And if we could just assume like positive intent from our partners. Yeah. And like, I don't want my, it would break my heart to think that there was something my partner couldn't tell me. Like it, it, I don't, I don't want him having to go to a stranger to say something that like, I think he knows, you know, I'm pretty cool and I'm down (laughs) for just about anything at least once. Right. But Mm -hmm. like, you know, I love when somebody can explain to me what they like about something that I don't really understand. And mm. maybe then I can get on board like, oh, that's really fascinating. Like I love I, the turn on might just be the fact that they're really turned on by it. It might not be that I like the thing itself. Mm. It might just be that I enjoy the the being part of something that's really exciting for them. Yeah, when people talk about stuff like that, you can just see the spark, you know, their eyes get all sparkly and they're all intense about how cool it is. I mean, you don't even need to see my eyes when I'm doing my podcast and talking about stuff because I'm so enthusiastic about this, about pegging, about ass stuff, about, but one of the phrases that you used that I absolutely love, and I think I might incorporate it in my webinars, which is saying a lot because I've taught so many freaking webinars by this point assume positive intent. So what that makes me think of immediately is my beginner's webinar. One of the things I talk about is first, the very first thing I talk about is all of the different misconceptions and assumptions and all that kind of stuff. Well, um, sexual orientation, as pretty much everybody who listens to this podcast knows by now, is the first misconception that it has anything to do with sexual orientation. And it's not a black and white thing. Uh, the vast majority of people who explore pegging are going to have the same sexual orientation after they start doing pegging as they did before. But if there is any repressed by curiosity that you really kind of haven't acknowledged that to yourself, can it bring that up? Sure. So in that moment, in that moment, when that happens, assume positive intent, because so many people have that knee jerk and really ridiculous misconception again about bisexuality is like oh my god now my partner is going to go out and fuck everybody in the world because now they're attracted to both or all genders you know and this is oh my god and what i tell them is trust your relationship agreements but i really like that phrase assume positive intent don't automatically go to the thing that scares you you know but that's easy to do right it is it's from our childhood like yeah it's just something gets scary. We feel like we might lose something really important to us and it's learning how to like regulate, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe you have to take some time. I heard something recently. Think about, okay, so the person is like, I want to talk to my spouse about my, or my partner, my interest in, in pegging. Think about how long it took you to formulate that conversation and how much time you put into being ready to have that conversation and give your partner that much time to also respond. Yes. I heard, I don't know where I heard it. I would love to give credit if I come across it again. I feel like that was even where I'm at now. I'm like, eye-opening comment, like that statement. I was like, holy shit. Like, wow. I never thought about that. It's like, yeah, I craft these conversations right? And then I expect this immediate feedback. And in that moment, when you deliver that, that conversation, that is such a vulnerable and a tender moment that I can see how, of course, you want that response. And of course, you want the ideal response that you're dreaming of, that you're craving, and you really want. But that is such a good thing. Give your partner an equal amount of time. So maybe it's like setting the container, you know, I, I, I'm a big fan of Reed Mahoko's like how to have difficult conversations formula, mm-hmm. right? But saying something like, I've got something really important to talk about. It's taken me a long time to craft this conversation. Before I even share it with you, I want you to know, I, I want to give you as much time as it took me. So don't feel a need to respond. And actually, I prefer maybe that you take a little time to, to consider your response, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And, and just like, setting that that it takes the pressure off yeah yeah absolutely it takes the pressure off 
Um, so one of the other things I wanted to talk to you about, <laughs> I, I'm just going to go straight to your uh, delicious description of your most recent uh, leather conference, leather something that you went to. Talk oh. about that just for some fun. Yeah, so I, I was in San Francisco recently for the American Association of Sex Educators, Counselors, and Therapists conference, which is the big certifying body for sex therapists. Not that you have to be a certified sex therapist to be to call yourself a sex therapist, um, but ASECT is uh, pretty big in that area. So it was an important conference for me to be at since I work with therapists primarily when I'm a surrogate partner. Um, so brought me to San Francisco and we can talk about how I got to present there, which was pretty cool. But we while, while mm -hmm. I was um, busy, uh, you know, shaking hands and kissing babies, there was no babies there, but you know what I mean? Schmoozing <laughs> with the people. Um, my, my husband came with me and he just, you know, decided he was going to tackle San Francisco every day, walked about five miles every day, just go into all the gayest areas of, of San Francisco. And um, he came back and reported that I needed to go to Mr. S leather. And so I was like, we had a day um, before I came back, we had a free day in town. So we did a little sightseeing that day. And, um, oh, I was probably, I had to be the only female bodied person in this very gay leather store, mm -hmm. but I was in heaven. Um, pop pop costumes galore which is like I love a good leather pup like that is like almost as good as my actual dog like I <laughs> that's my favorite part of pride is the leather pups um but this store uh there was a person working in the store in a lovely gladiator leather like skirt you know so it's got all each piece is separate so it it it, it's a very open skirt. Like yes. it's very easy to catch a, a view. And, um, and he was, he was not wearing any underwear, um, but was sporting a lovely erection. And <laughs> oh my God. I was just like, to only like, to be able to work in a place where <laughs> my cock can stay out and I can just like, you know, use it to my advantage. I'm like, do you think he like pumps before work do you think he like injects <laughs> do you think this is part of like the um like dress code requirement like, yes <laughs> I know right um but I was in heaven in there and you know mm -hmm. I come in with my adorable husband who you know is always like can we help you um mm -hmm. and and um I did come home with a souvenir and I'm pretty sure that I will probably be I, I don't know I'm sure lots of um femme identified people could wear this t-shirt um but I came home with a t-shirt that says athlete across the front spell of it. it for us yes a-s-s-l-e-t-e -S -S -E -E, like athlete but athlete and <laughs> I had to have it I definitely need to order one of those from Mr. I had S. to Leather. have it it has like a jock strap that hangs off of like some of the decor around the word that's across the front. I'll, I'll send you a picture of it. Well, that's um, something that you can wear around children. They're not going to know what it means, right? I mean, probably better than my t-shirt that says whores are healers. <laughs> exactly. There's always this line that we walk, you know, with shirts and stuff like that. But I'm always thinking of the little kids, certainly teenagers and stuff, when they see athlete and they see the jock, the jock strap, they would know, but I mean, teenagers, you know, they're, they, the internet. So I'm not meant to be around children. I mean, for the most part, you know, <laughs> when people call me and I think they're on, and I'm on speaker, but I'm like, are the kids around? Like, I need to know how I'm allowed to talk. <laughs> I totally understand. Remember yeah. the time I called you at Thanksgiving dinner and announced to whoever you were at the table with that I had an orgasm from pegging that day? Do you remember? <laughs> I think you had me on speakerphone with your kids. Like, I can't even remember that. It was like 2016, I think. It was like I, Thanksgiving. And yeah, anyway. Yeah, but I do remember um, just this recent holiday season, this last one during the holidays, like Christmas Eve, stuff like that, Thanksgiving that and I've said this many times on my podcast I live with my daughter and her boyfriend and we were going up to his celebration in Santa Barbara so we get up there and I came so close to introducing myself as Ruby mm. 
because I'm Ruby and, and I answer to either one. And, you know, the joke I always say is, you know, when people say, what do you want me to call you? I say, you know, I answer to either Ruby or Wendy, but, and you can call me either. It really doesn't matter to me unless you're, in, you're a guy who's in bed with me and you better damn well call me Wendy, unless you want me to beat you. And then I can, you can call me Ruby. <laughs> But, I know at my wedding, I was like, what am I referring to you here? Yeah, at? that was so right? funny. It was Ruby's totally yeah. fine. Yeah. But I, I literally came up and shook the hand of somebody and it said, hi, I'm, and there was this pause. And I said, Wendy, <laughs> I forget my name. It's like, right? I, remember, I remember going for a job interview right after I got married the first time and I just changed my last name. Right. Mm -hmm. And I go in for the job interview and I, I, I say, hi, my name's Michelle. And I gave my maiden name and I went, I mean, it's not, it's Michelle. And I gave my married name and they just looked at me like, how do you not know your last name? And I'm, <laughs> and I'm back in that place right now where I'm like, I'm in that weird, I haven't changed everything over names place. So you did life. change your last name then? I took the very Polish last name. I'm not going to say what it is, but yeah, yes, that's totally I took, fine. That you I took don't. the very Polish last name that nobody knows how to pronounce that my and husband asked me. So like, I would mean so much to me oh. if you took my name and I'm like, you don't ask for anything in this relationship. And this is what you've decided to ask for is this ridiculous <laughs> name that nobody can pronounce. Gosh, you're asking a lot from me. So yes, I took it. Wow. And uh, now I never know when I make reservations to things like, cause I still have a, one credit card in my, my, my previous married name. And now I have a credit card in my current married name. And I, I had to go rent a Home Depot truck the other day. And I'm like, I don't know what name the reservation is under. Just try one of these. <laughs> there are advantages to never changing your name, which is what I did. I got married twice, but I never changed my name. It should and, be taught in high schools. Like it really should be like, do you know how complicated your life gets if you take someone else's name? Like, it's yeah. And the other thing, other thing that I did, which I've never regretted, even though it is not usually the way that people do things is I never gave my daughter her father's last name. So she and I have the same last name and that has been very, very convenient for so yes. many reasons you know, so convenient. But so as I understand it, then you are taking on the new married name and what you had before what you left was the old married name. Yeah. Because I had in my first divorce decree that I could change back to my maiden name, which is all you need to do to go into the social security office and change your name back. And I went to go do it one day and I thought, fuck, this is a lot of work. And I, I called my ex-husband. I said, do you care if I change my name? He goes, I don't, I don't give a shit. Like mm -hmm. you can keep it. I don't mind. And I was like, cool. Cause nobody knows my last name anyways. Cause like everywhere in my work and online, I go by Michelle Renee. Michelle Renee. Yeah. Yeah. Which is my middle name. Right. I, I, I put that name together well before I got into my work because I was living in West Michigan and saying really controversial things online. And my then husband was worried <laughs> that our business would be affected. And so I had to take, get rid of my last name. So I was a little less trackable. Because, you know, progressive <laughs> ideas in mm -hmm, very mm -hmm. conservative area of the country. Um, so I've I've been known as Michelle Renee for so, so long. Most people in my life don't know my last name. Yeah. So like, it, it's not a big deal to change it. It's just whenever I have to like explain my last name to someone, I'm like, just, just let me spell it to you. You don't really want me to say it because you're yep. not going to, you're not going to know how to look it up just based on me saying it. So. <laughs> So yes, I have a very <laughs> Polish last name now. Congratulations on that. That just happened recently. The I got the video. Beautiful. I can't wait to share the video. Yeah. I'll put a blog post together because I'm so, so like, I feel like my wedding was this culmination of my life, which is very much my work is also a culmination of my life. Mm -hmm. And I just never a more proud um as much as I've loved all the, like I've gotten some pretty cool opportunities in the last year, but that wedding was freaking magical to bring, it was. Yeah. to bring my, my, my kids to get yeah. them to meet the important people in my life that they've just never had access to. Like you, yeah. I, I, I've said to many people, the picture of you with my sister, mm -hmm. just carrying on you know like the the photographer dear friend of both of us like mm -hmm. just captured this amazing moment with my sister and you and I'm just like 
it's so wild because you are like my surrogate mother, like my mm-hmm. mother, my actual mother died like 20 years ago. And I've kind of been like adopted you or you adopted me or we adopted each other, right? Both ways. And, yes. and, and for my actual biological sister to be meeting my <laughs> surrogate mother, quote unquote, right? Yeah. It was surreal. And also that like, I cried every time I looked at that picture for like the, the first week that I had access to it. Every time oh. I looked at it, all these feelings would come up because it was just such a precious like thing to see you two together and like worlds collide in the most beautiful way. It was an amazing experience. I I will never regret driving down there. And the the colorfulness, so to speak, of all the people there it's like yeah. oh yeah these are my people <laughs> it's like bringing it's it's bringing kink people together with sex work people with gamer yeah. people with yeah. our families who are very not all those things except for i do have one son who's definitely starting in the kink community as soon as he turns 18 but <laughs> he's very lucky that i'm the mother that will usher him into that community so so proud to hand him over and be like this is my kid yeah, yeah. Take him in and treat him well. You know what I mean? Like, that's so cool. But yeah, the wedding brought all these different people together. And I got feedback from like one of my friends that is also, a, you know, a sex worker. And she said, it was so cool to like, it just be so normal at my table to, to be sharing sex work stories. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, it was it really, she really appreciated being included. And, and of course, I don't know, it was just, it was, it was magical. It was, it totally was. So now let's talk about, see you, you know, we brought up the topic of sex work. Let's talk about your ASECT experience. Yeah. So um, rewind the clock a little bit. I, I trained as a surrogate partner in 2018, 2019. I started really doing the work in 2020 and just quick surrogate partner therapy is in, in the shortest way to describe, I work with therapists who have generally single clients who struggle with intimacy, whether it be physical or emotional intimacy, they have a hard time being in relationship. And I come in and create a a form of relationship with the client so that we can see what shows up because they've been stuck in talk therapy a while, not making much progress, and we need to shift things up a little bit. So I come in and we build our own little relationship that number one, we establish safety and then we figure out what's really happening kind of behind the scenes. Because a lot of times for, you know, common factors that bring people in is like erectile issues, um, premature ejaculation, those kinds of things. So a lot of times, maybe it's just a safety issue, right? We don't feel safe in our bodies. We've had maybe assaults, sexual assault is a big one that comes up in my work. Um, Maybe they're just a late in life virgin that is like Mm -hmm. afraid to date because they don't have experience. It's not socially acceptable anymore. And I say virgin very lightly because I kind of hate that word, but they're Mm. sexually inexperienced. We'll we'll use that as the term. So so that is kind of what a a just really broad way of saying, what is surrogate partner therapy? It is another modality to help enhance talk therapy. Right. So one of the things that I want to really point out strongly at this point in time, because anytime anybody uses the phrase sexual surrogate, it's such a misconception. I mean, I love hearing that definition because so many people think, oh, it's just someone that you go and have sex with and learn how to have sex. And I remember I started really understanding it a whole lot better when you said that almost doesn't happen until the very, very, very end of all the stuff that we've worked through that they needed to work through that we discovered and uncovered. And then finally you get to that point. It's not, you know, it's- If it's it's needed- Right. Yes. And by that point, it might not be, might not even be needed. Sometimes people are like, oh, I, I think I have this figured out now. And I go back to dating or whatever, you know, was holding them back is now gone. Yeah, it's working through all of that as opposed to sex work, which is just, that's a completely different thing, even though there are some overlaps. So go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so, so ASEC, the American Association of Sex Educators, Counselors and Therapists has historically not been pro surrogate partner therapy pro touch work in general right um so rewind the clock to the fall of 2019 they have something called a fall institute which is like a little conference um 
called Bridges to Bodywork, where they brought in a surrogate partner, sexological body workers, um, maybe somatica. I don't remember what different modalities they brought in for this conference to teach therapists and sex educators and counselors about the fact that there are touch modalities that they could be collaborating with. Mm. And there was a lot of discomfort, but there was a lot of, why did I not know about these things? They're not, therapists are not taught these things in part of their, as part of their education, right? Mm -hmm. There, this is not touched on. And so, so it started these little seeds that my wonderful colleague, Brian Gibney ran with and did a lot of really uncomfortable conversations with leadership at ASEC to say, hey, could we get some space in your organization? Mm. We would like to have a somatic sexuality professional special interest group, which is like, there's lots of different special interest groups inside of this organization, like gender diversity, special interest group and religion, special interest group. And, you know, all these little pockets of, of things that come into play in the sex therapy world. But, so, as soon, but as soon as they started talking about touching people, they're like, eh. right, because <laughs> people automatically get worried. The first question is always, is it legal, right? This has to be illegal. They, they, they think prostitution when they think of surrogate partner therapy or sex surrogacy, right? Yep. And I say, when, when I hear sex surrogacy, I'm like, the industry has moved beyond what I would consider sex surrogacy. We are much more relationship-based at this point. It's not about skills as much as it is about building relationship skills, not necessarily sexual skills. Mm-hmm. So, so, so fast forward, we have this somatic sexuality special interest group. And I actually am co-chairing it with Brian, which is such an honor because it gives me a place at the table in a mm-hmm. lot of ways that I would have never had access to before. So um, uh, one of my colleagues that I've collaborated with, a therapist, um, Lee Phillips, put in a submission for us to talk about a case at this year's conference. And um, it got selected. Mm. And so I found myself getting to have a, a, a really big place at the table in front of a very large audience. And actually, we had enough interest in our case about surrogate partner therapy, which was called Building Trust through surrogate partner therapy, um, we we had enough interest that they put us on the main stage. And I yes, thought I'd be yes. in a small, dark basement room with five people, right? <laughs> Who's going to be interested in this? I had this idea that the, the organization was so icked out by touch yeah, yeah. work, right? Mm-hmm. And not only did we get to have our presentation on surrogate partner therapy, um, our special interest group got to do a presentation on touch work in general. We had a surrogate partner represented. We had a professional cuddler represented. We had a somatic, uh, uh, somatic sex education and sexological body work practitioner represented. And again, really well attended. Not on the main stage. Unfortunately, we all can't have the main stage all the time, but <laughs> really well attended. But not only that, there were a lot of sessions that were about working with sex workers that were about what it's like to be a sex worker and also trying to hold a license, right? These different things. And they were well-received. There was standing room only in the presentation in the main room about working with sex workers. And there was people that were irate that you couldn't hold an ASEX certification while also doing any kind of erotic body work, right? Mm -hmm. Why can't we have different hats for different modalities? How Mm -hmm. come my, I can't do talk therapy with one client and then a different client do sexological body work. And are they always making that defining line, whether it's legal or not technically legal? I mean, how was that received? Was there? Yeah. We always take the surrogate partner therapy is legal. Yes. It is not illegal anywhere because we are not exchanging money for sex. Mm-hmm. They are, the, the work looks, the, the work is, is the same, whether I'm, you're showing up that day so we can talk about your attachment styles or talk about, you know, why you struggled holding a boundary with your mother, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Versus if I'm teaching you how to have hand sex, right? It, it doesn't, 
there's not a differential, like there's no way to come in and say, Michelle, here is $200. Let me touch your vulva. That's not how this works. Right. Yes. It's, it's, it's not in people's heads kind of explode when they try to like figure <laughs> out, Oh, that's what prostitution laws are. Like it's like a direct exchange for money for sexual services. Yeah. Yeah. Right. We are not actually doing that. Mm-hmm. And there is no guarantee that sexual services will ever be part of our work, right? Mm-hmm. It's this, it, it's mind blowing to some people and boy, do we, ha- we have to keep saying it. And my partner actually, who sat in on our, on our presentation. And that was one of the first questions from the audience, but of course, in my state, it's not legal. Actually, that's not true. And he goes, I have a vision of one day, you not having to answer that question anymore. Yes. Right? Yes. Wouldn't that be great? Decrim in general needs to happen, right? But also in my specific modality, please, it's not illegal. Quit spreading that information, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, but but this this um, session that happened earlier in the day before mine, standing room only, how to work with sex workers, and people were irate that they that this that there was a, a limit to their certification. And then they were also standing up and just outing themselves. Wow. That's I big. got through college doing sex work. Yeah. That's Maybe big. I'm still doing sex work and not telling anyone. Exactly. Like, there was so much of that happening over the course of that weekend conference. It just made my heart so, so happy. Like, I mean, I get to be out. I'm not a certified member. I'm, I I don't care if I'm ever a certified member. Of ASECT. Of ASECT. Mm-hmm. Um it's doesn't it doesn't really matter to me i think that though the people that have the education to do other jobs that are certifiable by asex should also be able to do my work mm-hmm. or be able to do you know whatever their form of sex work is right mm-hmm. and so um that was really really affirming also the incoming president of asex she did the opening for my my session oh yeah I asked, she was the moderator. I said, how did you get this gig? And she goes, I asked for it. I took it. I wanted to be the moderator of this. And so she did the opening remarks and was like, ASEC has been really terrible to touch workers. Nice. Basically, I'm here to say this is going to change, right? Wow. And, and we, we love sending people to Betty Dotson's work. And Betty Dotson could never be a certified sex educator through ASEC. And that is, you know, asinine. And they're just recognizing that there's so much value in other fields that they have consistently said no to. And, and the umbrella term sex workers includes so many different types of people, but that the coming out thing just warms my heart because I came out in, when was it? uh, 2019. And part of the reason I did was because there's so much stigma and discrimination and the whole taboo thing against sex worker, uh, against prostitution, basically. And there was a panel at South by Southwest and what they were talking about was how to take down the SESTA-FOSTA law because it so affected the internet, which is a lot about South by Southwest, but also it affected sex workers pretty clearly. And so Dan Savage made a comment about, well, uh, I would like to see more sex workers if they are able and they Mm -hmm. feel safe enough doing so to come out because that is how you decrease that stigma and and the discrimination is personalize it because there's we're we're all over the place man it could be the person that walks your dog it could be the person serving you coffee at the starbucks you never know who's a sex worker because we're literally all over the place yes and to know that well to know that they're normal people Mm-hmm. you know same thing with the kink community too right i'm always like the kinksters they're your fucking neighbors like i know <laughs> they're not know. odd but but so my colleague brian give me and i we were part of this presentation and we were like i said okay brian we're gonna go in and when we do our introductions we are going to introduce ourselves i'm, I'm gonna introduce myself as a full service sex worker because mm-hmm. it is also one of the hats that i wear though not super often you know it is a hat that i wear and Brian also. And so we were both like, yeah, we're going to go in there. We're going to make this statement, right? This was like our, we're going to be shocking, right? That's one and of the, it, yes, and it wasn't shocking. 
it had no shock and awe as you know the bush administration would say there was none like and that's awesome that there was none wow right it's a better case scenario i thought i was just going to go in and be like look at me soccer i look like a soccer mom and nobody would suspect that i happen to do some quote unquote illegal things right like exactly yeah. And that's always the choice I make when people say, okay, how would you like me to introduce you? Like when people want me to do be, you know, interviewed on their podcast or something, I always tell them ahead of time before we get too far down the road, you know, you should know that I am mm -hmm. an out sex worker. So if you didn't know that about my work, you need to know that in case that's something that is mm -hmm. not okay with you. And in case it's something that you don't want to introduce me as, you know, you can leave that in there or not. Doesn't yeah, but if somebody difference. Googles, you need to know. They will this, find it. Yes. I, I did a I did a TV episode uh filming in May. And I had to fill out their big like background check information. And it was like, where are you listed on websites? Where like all these different things? And it was like, I'm gonna make sure I put the things that I'm most that I think they're gonna have the most issue with potentially, so that they can weed out if they want to not touch me. Yeah. Right. Like you know, yeah, I have a, I have a, a listing on this sex worker site. I have a, you know, I have a, you know, one of those fan sites I've got, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. You should know it's out there. Yeah. And, and choose whether you want to sign on to that or not. Cause I'm not going to change. I'm not going to take any of that and like hide it. Exactly. And that's, that's one of the reasons that uh, I tell people that when they want to interview me and, you know, to their credit, all the different interviews I've done, no one has ever said, okay, then sorry, you know, yeah. we can't do this. In fact, more often than not, what I get is, well, I'm going to have you back on the show to talk about that. <laughs> I just Anytime. did a whole, I did a whole Instagram live. I, I did this one podcast about um, sexual coercion in long-term relationships is a lot of what their topic kind of covers. Like, what happens in these sexual relationships over the long haul. And um, they wanted to hear my story about like how I got out of my first marriage that had sexual coercion and how I turned into this like sex educator. And that it's a really fascinating story, right? Um, but when they hear that I am a sex worker and in an open relationship, but is fairly monogamous. I mean, I, I say definitely on the monogamous side of Dan Savage's like, you know, terminology there. Um, they brought me back to do an Instagram live to talk about, oh, you must be in an open relationship because you're a sex worker. And I'm like, no, my partner actually understands that that's a job that is not the same as having outside like extracurricular activities. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like it's very different, but it's such a hard concept for people it to is. understand. I love my job. I honestly don't work with people. I don't find something lovely about them. Yes. It's same still here. work. It's yes. still work. And it's, it's, it's one of these, like, who is it for? Like, you know, I did the Betty Martin wheel of consent, like a pro training. And the, you know, the question is always, who is this for when I'm in a professional setting? It is never for me. It may look like it's for me, but it's still me doing the thing that is really for you. Yes. Right. And that's like, that's really affected kind of like my whole view personally around non-monogamy is like, when do I actually let somebody else hold space for me? It's a really hard thing to turn off. And when I, if, if some, I don't know if somebody is even capable of holding space for me mm -hmm. and like, that's a, I think that's, it's turned me into um, much more on the monogamy side. Cause I know my partner can hold space for me. Mm -hmm. I let him hold space for me and I don't let a lot of people hold space for me. So to 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 overcome that barrier for non-monogamy since being in this work has gotten really hard to like find my yes for additional play partners mm -hmm. yeah the holding space and thing it's a lot of what you're saying resonates with me because um when i do sex work it's all about the person i'm working with and certainly i have all kinds of boundaries about what you can and can't do and there's a ton of boundaries about what you can't do to me because that's not how I work. But then when it comes to intimate relationships, it I just find it so difficult to find someone who can hold that container for me in such a way that I feel totally safe. Mm 
Yeah. And I, I use sex a lot for my own personal healing journey. So like sex helps me tap into this kind of like knowing download of information will come to me. Like it opens up some channels for me to really get clarity Mm. and I trust it. It's amazing. I, I remember the first time it happened, I was like, what the fuck is going on? I feel like I have no ability to like have any kind of walls to my vulnerability. Like it felt really scary. And now I'm like, oh, I need a therapeutic fisting because I know that's going to open me up because deep (laughs) tissue, deep tissue, pelvic floor massage. Right. Yeah. And I can work through some shit in that space. And, um, I recently had, a, a an extracurricular lover, um, who was actually the only reason I play with him is to work through some shit because he was incredible at holding space. I thought, you know, I was like, gosh, you should be a professional. You're so good at holding space and the boundaries that I had set. And, and I mm-hmm. said, like, are you okay with me just receiving? Cause I just, I got some shit to work through and I know this is a space I could do it. And he says, yeah, I, I'm a, I'm a grown ass man. I, I can take care of myself. And I'm like, perfect. If we're good with that, that this is not a reciprocal situation. I just want to receive. Awesome. Now, can we talk about tears? How do you feel about crying? Mm-hmm. And he goes, oh no, I don't like to, I'm not about pain. And I'm like, no, 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 this isn't about pain. This is, I'm going to cry. I'm mm-hmm. going to work through shit. I need to know that you're consenting to this. And he goes, well, I've never done it before, but I'm down to try. And I was like, okay, cool. And oh, I got some shit worked out. Like, and he was okay with the tears. He was okay with it. Nice. He he was able to really like make, I, I felt very okay with bringing that to that space. Mm-hmm. But it's funny because I don't think people have witnessed this kind of like sexual healing thing in like real time. But like literally it's like, oh, I just had a great orgasm. I sit up and I go, I got to tell you a story. You okay hearing a story? <laughs> And it was about, I I have to say this stuff out loud. It's kind of like how it really gets integrated into my body. And I'm like, so my, one of my early clients as a surrogate partner got scared because I showed up really authentically in my sexuality and he didn't come back. He ghosted me and never came back after lunch. And I'm realizing in this very moment that I'm having a really hard time changing hats between Michelle, the surrogate partner who has to really mute her sexuality and so many things overwhelming for the novice right like we talk about being in different playgrounds I'm in a very different playground than my clients but in the beginning I didn't know that I needed to do that and and I'm having a hard time coming out of that and like giving myself permission to fully show up outside of my work the way that I would with my partner and right? and I'm, just, yourself, I'm just like yeah. downloading all this stuff out loud to him and it's just like okay and then like we played again and the next time my download was I really don't trust men to hold space for me mm. really deep down in my core it takes a very special man for me to feel like I can be completely open and authentic in my sexuality mm-hmm. and and if you are one of those people, you're fucking lucky because it is quite the fucking experience, <laughs> right? Like, but I can't, I just, it's, 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 it's such a cool place to work that stuff out. And it's so consistent for me. Well, and it's Give ringing all kinds of bells about the Vegas that. nerve stuff, you know, and mm-hmm. all of that. There's been so much interest in and people talking about the whole Vegas nerve thing. And it's such a fascinating thing for me to have uncovered. I mean, this information has been there for a long time, but to connect up vagus nerve stimulation with the bigger and wider toys. And, you know, theoretically you can get any, you can get vagus nerve stimulation just from doing pegging, from putting fingers in there, but you're going to get a lot more vagus nerve stimulation if you're using the bigger toys and the longer toys. And to find out that that had any kind of connection at all with like depression and PTSD. I had a guy who was in my webinar one time and I, cause there's a whole list of things that stimulating the vagus nerve can do for you. And one of the things is it can decrease stress and anxiety and it can really help with depression and stuff. And this guy says, hey, you know, he writes it in the chat. So I'm a veteran and this explains a lot because mm-hmm. I have PTSD and every once in a while I just have to play with the big toys. 
And yeah. all these things are just sort of fitting together like this beautiful pieces of a puzzle. And, and also the fact that um, pelvic floor oh. dysfunction, bingo, okay. um, pelvic floor stress happens so much and is so common with uh, men and women, any gender. And it is so often misdiagnosed, the symptoms of it for other things. Mm-hmm. And it is so rarely well treated, you know, but treated effectively. There are very few like medically oriented places that actually do pelvic floor dysfunction therapy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I it, mean, finding a good pelvic floor therapist is, you know, I think an untapped um, resource that a lot of people don't realize they have access to yeah. probably through their medical insurance. Yeah. Yeah. And but even they, they even have limits to what they can do in their work. Right. And so I, I don't know what exactly, I, I should sit down with one and really like break it down and be like, so what can you do and what can't you do? Because they also don't need to be treated like a sex worker. You know what I mean? They're in there to do a job. Most and... of the time, I think they work under the auspices or under the supervision of a physical therapist is what I, I'm pretty sure that they do. But where where it overlaps with my interest is um, prostate health, because mm-hmm. wouldn't it be a lovely thing if there were places that you could go to get prostate massage? And that used to be the way it was um, decades ago. Yeah. Absolutely. And also some of the research that I have found more writings about recently is that this used to be, this is still fairly common in Asian countries where they do prostate massage or prostate health. That's all there is to it. In fact, often wives are taught to do that for their husbands because it's prostate health. And so it's no surprise that BPH, uh, which is enlarged prostate, is epidemic in this country, but not in Asian countries. You know, it's fascinating. But when you yeah. actually talk about it, there is so much potential pleasure there and the whole orgasmic thing that people freak out about it. And now doctors always default to either giving medications or surgery. But I found somebody else talking about it and they were saying, okay, but you know, the reason that we don't recommend prostate massages because often it's actually pelvic floor. In other words, they're talking about it's this domino effect. Mm-hmm. And the pelvic mm-hmm. floor is the base of it, the first domino, and then that will affect your prostate. And mm-hmm. then maybe you get either the urinary problems or the, the swollen prostate or, or erectile dysfunction and stuff like that. So it's all tied in together. But this whole scary, no, we don't pr- touch the prostate seems to really smack of the whole, you know, it edges over into too much, you know, it just shouldn't be pleasurable, you know, sort well, of thing. And it's all the homophobia, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, my partner saw a pelvic floor therapist for a little while, which was mm-hmm. really, really fascinating. Um, you know, he's like coming home and like showing me the exercises because he knows that I'm going to geek out about all this stuff. Right. <laughs> and and like when he talked to his urologist before he went to the pelvic floor therapist, he was like, you know, do you know anything about prostate massage? And he's like, oh, my partner is an expert. <laughs> <laughs> No problem there. She's not a doctor, but she plays one on TV. You know, like, <laughs> trust me, it gets plenty of attention, you know? So, yeah, but um, back to the public floor health stuff, you might find um, the book Wild Feminine from Tammy Kent was a really good read around, at least for vulva owners, um, public floor health. It got a little woo-woo for me. Um, but I stuck with it. And that is, it was like in the last chapter where I put it together that my version of therapeutic fisting is really just incredibly deep pelvic floor massage. Mm -hmm. And it like, that was like, I'm like, I know there's a reason I'm reading this book. I know, I know there's a reason I should keep reading. I should keep reading it. And then I hit that last chapter. I was like, that was it. I felt so validated Mm. because people would laugh when I'd say I need a therapeutic fisting and they go, oh, Jesus, Michelle, like what a term, right? But no, (laughs) really was so, it's always been, it doesn't have to be fisting to be fair, but any good hand sets will open me up. And I think, you know, if I, if I don't have a prostate, that's, you know, the next best thing, I guess I would, Mm -hmm. I would like a prostate at least for 24 hours, but you know, (laughs) I would too, just to see what it feels like. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've, I've in my classes now I say, okay, so this is kind of what it feels like. 
admittedly, I do not have a prostate, but I listen really well. <laughs> and so many of these things that I teach about are exactly what has been shared in forums and things like that. Like when you use these big toys, it's like a good firm massage from the inside. And that is so powerful. This is an mm -hmm. area of our bodies that's just so core and it affects mm -hmm. so many things and we don't attend to it in the same way. And partly it's because it can only be accessed certain ways. And those ways are all freak people out. You know, they're all Very taboo. taboo. Yeah. 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 Um, I know one of my, uh, one of my clients who I know listens to your podcast. Um, I remember when he started uh, pelvic floor PT and he comes in, he goes, Michelle, like she worked out my asshole and my back pain went away. Like it was just this, like who would have thought, you know, but it's all tied. It's all tied together. It totally is. Head over to part two where the conversation continues 